Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Mark O'Day. He's the chairman and founder of Oxygen Capital Corp who are an integrated merchant bank and mining house, creating value by structuring, financing, and building mining companies in-house and taking those companies public. Some of the companies in their portfolio include Claw Gold, Liberty Gold, Sun Metals, and Discovery Metals. Mark is an industry mining entrepreneur, a seasoned geologist, and a deal maker. And it's like, sorry, I'll repeat that again, and successfully led and developed many assets. So with no further ado, I'd like to welcome Marco Day to the Dig Deep, the Mining Podcast to give us his amazing journey and what his thoughts are of the mining industry going into the next decade. So I'd like to welcome Mark. How are you doing, Mark? Hey, I'm good, Rob. Thanks for having me. No worries. I appreciate your time. Um, so yeah, as we always start these podcasts, um, appreciate you can give us a, a little bit of your background um, and your journey. So from when you, from when you graduated, um, and obviously okay. we spoke we spoke before this podcast and uh, you were in, in Australia doing your PhD. So around about that time um, through to current day. Um, and if you want to share anything that people may not know about you. Okay, great. So I don't have to go back to my birth story. Okay. No. <laughs> That's entirely up to you if it's interesting. Okay, okay. okay great. I mean, I would, I would go back to The Rock. There's a place in Canada called The Rock, which is Newfoundland. It's uh, the easternmost province in Canada. It's this isolated island, you know, with barren moonswept rocks, moonscape rocks, and, uh, you know, stuck out into the cold Atlantic. Probably a lot like England, <laughs> but uh, a, little, a little harsher uh, climate-wise. Anyway, that's, that's where I grew up, surrounded by rocks, and sort of exposed to them day in and day out. And I sort of worked for a while as an inshore fisherman, sort of looking at the coastline from the ocean and I fell in love with rocks. And so that became what I pursued professionally and academically and ended up after undergrad going to Monash University in Australia and did a PhD there in structural geology up in the sort of iconic Mount Isa belt in Queensland, Queensland. Yeah. which is not, is not for everybody, but I just loved it up there. It was incredible and uh, sort of stuck around there for about five years and then Sort of like most people, you hit a crossroads in your life and you decide, you know, which, which path you want to take, academic or, or otherwise. I chose the business side of things and sort of relocated back to Canada and, you know, consulted for a few years and tried to get my foot in the door on a bunch of different companies, established myself back in Canada. And, and uh, sort of my first real big break in the public company arena came in sort of the year 2000, 2001, on the back of the uh, Gold Corp Challenge that Rob McEwen launched back then, which was a fairly, you know, disruptive event. Uh, and I ended up placing second in that event. Um, some, Australians, uh, some Australians beat me, um, <laughs> but it, it ended up uh, launching my career running public companies. And so 
effectively that got me into my first deal, which was called Frontier. And, you know, it led to Aurora and it led to sort of effectively nine other public companies that I've created with some partners over the past 20 years. Okay. Yeah. So, and obviously with um, Oxygen Capital Corp, um, I wonder if you can tell us about the companies that you have and projects that you have within, within that group. Um, pure Gold, Liberty Gold, Sun Metals and Discovery Metals. I just wonder if you can give us an overview of those, of those projects and operations. Yeah, sure. I'll give you sort of a high-level snapshot. Our house is pretty full right now. Um, the mining continuum, as you know it, sort of spans from early grassroots exploration all the way to production and reclamation. And within that mining continuum, there are two sweet spots um, that we all sort of recognize. The first sweet spot is discovery, where stocks go from you know, 10 cents to a dollar or two on the back of a discovery that you know, started out as nothing and now it's become something tangible and real. And then the next sweet spot is cash flow and production. And so we've got four companies underpinned by four portfolios, four key assets, and they're located, they're situated on that continuum in each sweet spot. So Let's start with the discovery end of the spectrum. We've got Liberty Gold, which is focused in the Great Basin in the United States. So for those of you who don't know the Great Basin, it is truly an iconic, prolific gold center in, in the Southwest US of the United States. Most people think of it just as Nevada, as a Carlin type system. Um, it goes way beyond just Nevada. So the Great Basin is a geo, geographic and, and geological feature it spans into idaho and utah and into california and so we're working in the great basin our key flagship projects in southern idaho called black pine and it is sort of one of the last remaining outcropping big scale open pitable carlin type systems out there and they're you know when you're in a belt that's been been mined and explored for 100 years um you know finding getting your hands on an outcropping big scale carlin system is as rare as hen's teeth so we got something big and exciting there that we're in the process of drilling off. Um, we have another project or company called Discovery Metals, and that is focused on silver predominantly in, um, in Mexico. So we've got a project called Cordero. It's one of the largest undeveloped silver resources in the world. Um, there's been sort of a PEA and a historical resource done on it. And depending on what cutoff grade you choose, there's over a billion ounces of silver and silver equivalent in this sort of polymetallic big system. It's big. It's got potential for much higher grades in, in coherent uh, units that we're drilling off right now. It's, a, it's an amazing vehicle to sort of get some leverage to a rising silver market. And, you know, we've recently had... Eric Sprott just invests multiple times in this for exposure to silver. He now owns 26% of the company. So it's a, it's, a great, uh, it's a great silver proxy. And then we have Sun Metals, which is focused in BC, similar type system. It's a high grade discovery. We're calling the 421 zone. Basically it's a high grade, sil uh, uh, high grade copper and gold massive sulfide that we identified and targeted and drilled about two years ago. And our, our first hole into this system returned about 100 meters of 3% of, uh, copper equivalent, depending on, on uh, cutoff there. But anywhere from 3 to 5% copper equivalent over a big, thick interval. It was a big, juicy, massive sulfide hit, and we've been stepping out 
consistently, uh, systematically over the last two years, building tonnage, and that's a growth story as well. And tech owns a big chunk of that uh, company. On the other end uh, uh, of the spectrum, on the sweet spot spectrum, is our near-term producer called Pure Gold. And so we are four months away from first gold pour at the Pure Gold Mine in Red Lake, Ontario. We've spent the last year and a half coming through construction, financing construction, et cetera. We're coming out of that sort of boring phase in the continuum, and we're in the process of re-rating to a producer. So we are literally the next North American gold producer to hit the market. Uh, and we'll be pouring our first million ounces of reserves, uh, start pouring by Christmas this year, and we'll be the 17th highest grade gold mine in the world. Okay. That's, that's, that sounds all great, all those four projects. Could you choose sort of one of them to give us a little bit more insight to the resource, the challenges you may have faced, the ESG, and the outlook for that particular asset? Okay, well, why don't we, why don't we jump into the one that's closest to production, yep. which is Pure Gold. Um, the, sort of just breaking down your question here, um, you know, we've, we've, we've acquired this asset in the late 2014, you know, at the trough in the bottom of the market. Nobody cared about gold. We saw a great opportunity here to, uh, to, to acquire a high-quality Tier 1 asset in a Tier 1 jurisdiction. It was underexplored. It had been a past producer. It stopped producing in the late 70s. We said, okay, we've got a new gold environment. We've got a new paradigm for gold exploration and mineralization in Red Lake. Let's apply everything we know. And, and get busy. So we put together a phenomenal Red Lake-focused team. All of us cut our teeth in Red Lake, and we basically took an asset that had been sort of discarded effectively, and within a couple of years, it drilled off two and a half million ounces of, of brand new ore. So we've got a mil two, two million ounces roughly in the measure of an indicated category at about nine grams. And we've got another half million ounces in the inferred category at a similar grade. So that's two and a half million ounces. We cut our reserves from that. So thinking we're going to do this in phases. So phase one is a million ounce reserve. All kinds of organic growth in and around it. These deposits are deep, very deep roots. I mean, Evolution, one of Australians, Australia's producers just acquired the Red Lake mine complex up the road, and they're now mining down at two and a half kilometers depth. So We've got a, we've, we believe we've got a long road ahead of us for continued organic growth, and this will be a, you know, a significant project on the Canadian scene. Um, I guess the biggest challenge that we've faced is the same that every other, as every other mining company's faced in the last five months, which has been COVID. Um, you know, we've been incredibly lucky that our project is accessible by highway. So if this had been a remote fly-in, fly-out camp situation, um, you know, we'd have major delays in our, in our schedule. And we've been able to avoid that. Obviously, we put in some pretty sort of rigorous protocols in terms of health and safety to mitigate any health risks. Um, but we've been able to build out a new protocol of, of driving in and out of sight only. There's, you know, no air, air travels allowed. And it's allowed the, the local population to remain employed and uh, all of our contractors and consultants, many of whom live in the Red Lake area, have been able to not skip a beat. Yeah, that's good. And any sort of, uh, apart from COVID, any other challenges that you face with maybe the resource or 
or the the community around that area? Or is it obviously it's it's predominantly a mining mining area? So yeah, we're we're incredibly fortunate again to be in an area that's been mining continuously for eighty five years. Yeah. So. You live in Red Lake to either work at the mines or run a business that supports people who work at the mines. So, you know, there's, it's in the DNA of the place that mining is basically the, the lifeblood of the town. And it's an incredibly supportive environment for that. Obviously, you've got to do all the right things. And, and uh, you know, you see your sustainability aspect of your and your corporate governance and your, your ESG component of your company has to be top notch. And it is in our case. I mean, we in, in the case of Pure Gold, we're building a new mine in the footprint of an old one. So that's involved a lot of reclamation, a lot of cleanup, and effectively starting life at a site that's cleaner than when we inherited it or bought it back in 2014. I mean, we're designing the project from scratch, foreclosure. So as we build it out and its life evolves, we're closing it as we go. Right. Yes. So um, we've got a, in a later phase in our mine life as we get a little deeper, we're converting to electric vehicles. So an entire electric underground fleet. So all these things are, are real good environmental and sustainable components to our business. And obviously from the governance point of view, we've got a, you know, a solid independent governance committee with all the protocols and, and policies in place that we review quarterly. And, um, you know, all of us are big shareholders in this company who, you know, we're aligned with, with the interests of all of our outside shareholders. Yeah. And what's the outlook and time frame of that uh, operation in terms of, um, obviously, once you start pouring and then obviously increasing production as you go? Um, have you got any talk, time frames for the short and medium term over the maybe next five, ten years? So right now our feasibility study, which is you know, it was published about a year ago, uh, it was it was done at twelve seventy five gold. So it's it's obsolete from the point of view of you know what our cash flows are going to look like and our margins. Um, but we scoped out an initial twelve year mine in phase one, you know, on the back of an eight hundred ton a day operation. It's clear to us now that this is a project that can evolve and scale up very very clearly to a bigger project with a longer life. So yeah. as people sort of look and familiarize themselves with pure gold, it's important to look beyond what the feasibility study says and look at sort of all the low hanging fruit that's around the reserves that can get converted to reserves and, and fed into a scaled up mine that will go for ideally go for decades. Yeah. Um, you say your companies are built on common foundation of high quality, long life projects with lasting economic opportunities, uh, community benefits and environmental protection. Um, can you go a little bit deeper into that and give us some further content around how you analyze and select an asset to develop? And obviously, I suppose you can give some examples of the assets that you have chosen or potentially assets that you, you yeah, may be sure. looking at now. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, it doesn't matter where you go in the world, whether you're in, you know, parts of Africa or parts of Eurasia or North America, if, if, you're, not, um, if you're not going into this in a transparent way with your host communities um, with an expectation that you're going to be profit sharing and, and developing good sustainable policies and procedures, then you're not going to get anywhere. So, you know, obviously... 
uh, host communities in and around any project are interested in, you know, are you going to, are you going to leave this project? Are, are you going to have a negative impact on the environment and effectively, you know, what's, what's in it for me and how are you going to share these economic benefits? So, so all of that is part of the, the DNA and the fabric of any project development initiative that we undertake right from the very beginning. And in terms of what we end up selecting, um, if we feel we can operate in an area and there's receptive population and a receptive community to what it is that we want to do, then obviously we look at the scale of the operation. And if it's, a, if it's something that is sort of less than 10 years, it's not of great interest to us. Right, you know, right now it's the same amount of effort building a, a five-year mine as it is a, a twenty-year mine, and so why waste your time and effort on something that's got such little lifespan and 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 longevity? So we're looking for something that can kind of span a decade and has the potential to grow from there. And we've worked all over the place. I mean, our footprint has—I mean, the last mine I was involved in building was in Burkina Faso. And we had a big global resource of over 5 million ounces with, you know, phase one was sort of just under a million ounces. Um, and it was, it was going to have a long, long history of, of growth and development in that part of the region, which was going to, you know, translate into some great economic benefits for the communities. Yeah. Um, you've obviously, like you just mentioned, that you've been um, uh, mining in Burkina Faso. How easy is it? to build a mine in a first or well-developed country compared to a third world country like Burkina Faso. What, I imagine obviously it's a lot easier, but what are the main aspects would you say that is the big differences between mining, say, in a third world country in Africa compared to, say, in the US? Yeah. Well, I'd start with the risks, right? So the risks are different, fundamentally different. They, yeah. I think they belong in different buckets. And, you know, our experience in Africa was, um, what I concluded from that experience was that it all comes down to your timing in a particular jurisdiction. So if you can, if you can acquire, build and operate a mine and make your money back and, and, and distribute wealth to your shareholders in between coups, then, <laughs> then you're fine, right? And if you get that timing wrong, then you've got, you've got some you know, surprising issues that you're going to have to deal with that could be detrimental. Yeah. That are really hard to bake into, you know, a long-term plan. Right. You don't have those risks in that same bucket in first world countries, whether it be, you know, North America, you know, Canada, the U S Australia, et cetera. Yeah. You have different risks and often those risks revolve more around your ability to permit in an effective way. Right. And so getting your license to operate, is tougher in a first world country takes longer it's more methodical and there's more of a a well-trodden path and a prescriptive process but it takes a long time right and you know that's a function of just i guess the maturity of of the of the nation and the sort of environmental awareness of people around compared to a developing country which frankly needs the needs the investment from um, you know, foreign companies to come in and kickstart the economy and create jobs. And so there's a, there's a willingness to, not that you skip stages or skip steps, you still do the same sort of environmental protection as you would in a first world country. It's identical, 
Um, but the roadmap is, is a lot quicker. Yeah. And what would you prefer? Do you prefer those types of environments in a third world country or would you prefer an easier, an easier life in a first world country? I personally, at this stage in my career in life, want to be working in a first world country. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Just because of the stage of your life, but probably previous, you might have wanted to have those. Yeah. And have uh, those challenges and have those experiences. Um, but, you know, right now, at the end of the day, I want to, I want to go to bed knowing I'm going to wake up uh, and still own this project. And, you know, the government that existed the day before is still going to be there. You know, and, you know, that, that's worth something. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, I've interviewed a, a few entrepreneurs now, uh, mining entrepreneurs. Um, what would you say to anyone wanting to step in the shoes of a mining entrepreneur as to what they would expect, the challenges and difficulties they would face? Um, and what kind, of type, what kind of type of person would you say you would need to become to become a, a successful mining entrepreneur? I mean, is there certain attributes that you need? Um, is it a learned skill or are you born with it? Right, yeah. Um, I'd say, first of all, you know, people would need to be prepared mentally to fail on a regular basis and, and be okay with that. And so if you, if, you, um, if, you, if you take that ability and ascribe some personality traits to it, for example, you would need to be, you need to be tenacious, you need to be persistent, you need to have a thick skin I think to a certain degree, sort of, you need to be chronically dissatisfied <laughs> because you're constantly pushing the boundaries of, of what you've just achieved, right? So, uh, you know, you're, you're always pushing for more and new challenges and new opportunities. So you're, you're, you know, you're not sitting back and being particularly complacent or satisfied with what you've done already. You're always looking for, for growth and new opportunities. And I think you need to be a good communicator. That's absolutely vital. Um, on, the, on the technical side of things, I do believe there's a, a great advantage to entrepreneurs who are underpinned by real good technical skills. Right, there's so, way more, yeah, way so more credibility. For instance, being a geologist, would you say? Yeah, for, yeah. for example, if you're running a mining company, then you better understand some geology and you, and you better have home, honed your craft as well as you can so that you, you know you're not stepping into you know a project that's got no chance at all right and so as you know as the head of the founder of a whole bunch of companies and former ceo of five mining companies myself um i like i mean the fact that i'm a, a strong technical geologist has been a huge advantage mm. and so i would encourage whether it's you know biomed or pharmacy or, or high tech or whatever your industry is if you're going to lead a company in that industry, you better have some good, strong technical skills backing you up. Yeah. And yeah. do you think it's a learned skill to be a successful mining entrepreneur or do you think you're born with it? You know, I, I do think you're born with it to a certain degree or, or at least you're born, you're born with a comfort zone that is different maybe to other people's comfort zones. So, you know, there's lots of people I work with who, who could be great entrepreneurs and great CEOs. They just, they're just not comfortable doing it. Is that because they're risk profile as well? I think so. Yeah. yeah. They just, yeah. they're not comfortable being right out there, right in front. And, and um, I think it ultimately does come down to risk mm. and your, your tolerance for it. 
Yeah. So maybe, um, I suppose maybe it can be a learned skill, a learned skill, but it, it, I suppose as you become more experienced in your mining career, no matter what, obviously where you come from, um, it's then understanding the risks and challenges and then looking at it and then taking those bigger risks and the people that take the biggest risks, uh, I suppose it's risk, uh, risk and reward thing, the more risk yeah. that you take. And I suppose it's a calculated risk. It's not a, uh, a big risk that you lose everything, um, yeah. although it could happen. But I suppose it's your risk tolerance is how you... Yeah, and there are, I mean, I've worked with lots of first-time CEOs. So the, through the course of the, the nine companies we've created here, there have been a lot of first-time CEOs that I've, I've, you know, plucked out of the industry or groomed internally, and you know they've all matured, right? So they, what they started out in the job trying to find their their way, and and now they're doing a great job, and and they're you know they're they're strong CEOs in their own right, and have turned into great entrepreneurs. Yeah, so and it's it, something you can learn. Yeah, and were you mentored at all? Did you follow anyone in particular? I think we're all mentored, aren't we? So there's, you know, whether you realize it or you're, or not. And so, yeah, I've had really, really strong mentors, and I've always been one to kind of lean heavily on older generations around me, and you know, ask every idiotic question I can, and and not be embarrassed about it. And you know, I really like the comfort of having sort of senior states people around me, uh, especially in the earlier parts of my career. So I, I had great, great mentors to lean on consistently. Yeah. Um, what challenges do you see the industry facing um, over the short and medium term, I suppose up to 10 years, especially with the, the precious metals entering a, a bull market? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the, one of the challenges that I think we're that's underappreciated is the 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 importance of, of timing and jurisdiction. And from a jurisdiction theme, for example, one of the challenges is that a lot of people think gold price goes up or copper price goes up, and that and that therefore liberates a whole bunch of trapped value in, in resources in the ground, and you know that'll all get flooded into the market overnight. And you know the tap just gets turned on. Well, that's not the case. It, that doesn't happen that way. And and part of the reason it doesn't happen that way is because there are there are so many deposits out there that are stuck in the ground for non-price sensitive reasons. Okay, so there are reasons related to jurisdiction and location, whether that's you know associated with a geopolitical risk or environmental sensitivity or you know extreme poverty or whatever it might be there's like right now there's 25 years of global production sidelined in the gold environment um, gold deposits around the world because they're in the wrong place so the challenge moving forward in if we're in a bull market is investors and companies need to focus on high-grade deposits that are price insensitive right that can that can that can handle a lot lower prices in places that you can actually mine and permit, right? And easily done as well, like you said. So, yes. so it's again, it's all the um, outside influences kept at, at, at a minimum to, yeah. to look at those projects. Yeah, got you. Um, what future jurisdictions and commodities are, are you favoring 
um, for the future? Well, look, we've always been, as a group, we've always been pretty counter-cyclical. So as commodities are out of favor, we're building our businesses in that commodity. And then as they come into favor, we're harvesting um, results. So we've done that over the last eight years. We've been in this you know, pretty apathetic bear market in the precious metal space since 2012, 2013, till just very recently. And during that period, you know, we have acquired projects cheaply. We've brought in shareholders and key investors to kind of back us on this journey. We've invested capital in them as efficiently as we can. And now they're, they're being served up to the world at a time when gold's at an all-time high in, in just about every currency on the planet. So that was a counter-cyclical, very deliberate type of business strategy. And it's reaping rewards right now because companies are scrambling for growth and you know, and paying top dollar for assets that, um, you know, were one-tenth the price five years ago. Yeah. So on that counter-cyclical note, I would, you know, I would focus on some copper right now, if you can get it. Um, good, decent-grade copper deposits in places that you can actually work and permit. One example is Sun Metals. So we've got a high-grade copper gold discovery in northern BC. Um, you know, we, we would look to, to build out that portfolio focused on thematically on, on copper projects uh, because it will have its day, you know, in the near term here. Yeah. And are you actually going out and looking at uh, new assets at the moment? And is there any particular jurisdictions that you're looking at? You know, I stick with the first world theme, you know, first to second world theme. So I think, you know, North, North America, including, you know, Mexico, obviously bits and pieces of South America. You know, obviously we go to Australia, it's a lot tougher to manage from so far away. Um, you know, parts of Eurasia might be okay, but we're not, you know, I'm not stepping back into Africa, for example. Yeah. And why is that in particular? Is that just because of political, economic outlooks? Yeah, I just don't see that area getting, getting any better mm. in the near term. Yeah. Um, so what's the outlook of the company um, and why would our audience want to invest in um, either pure gold, Liberty Gold, Sun Metals or Discovery Metals? Well, in a nutshell, just to, to knock off each one here, I mean, pure gold is, is incredibly unique in the sense that it is the, you know, North America's next producer in line, right? So if you're looking for near-term cash flow and that producer re-rating that comes with production, um, with all kinds of growth underpinning it, it's a, you know, it's a great opportunity. There's, there's incredibly scarce supply of these types of things out there. In fact, I think if you, I don't know what your universe looks like, but looking at our universe over here across the pond, you know, maybe it's 12 to 18 months out would be the next new mine in North America that would come on stream behind pure gold. I mean, these things don't happen every day. Yeah, yeah. Right? And then the other three, starting with Liberty, um, exposure to a tier one asset in a tier one jurisdiction with, you know, low capital costs and low technical risk. These open pit heap leach mines are amazing profit centers. I mean, the last one we found was called Long Canyon. We sold it to Newmont for $2.3 billion. That was in, that was in Nevada. That was a, a high grade Carlin system. We think Black Pine has got similar kind of potential in terms of scale. So it's a, you know, it's got to be on, on people's radar. 
Mm. And discovery metals would be for the same same exact reason, but focus on silver. Yeah. Right. Silver has got a sort of slightly smaller niche following, perhaps, but it is a sort of the high volatility equivalent of gold, and it's moving in the right direction in terms of reverting to the right sort of silver gold ratio over the long term, which is you know fifty or sixty. Yeah. And so if silver ramps up and Discovery's got this great inventory of high-grade, open pitable silver, that gives investors amazing exposure to that commodity. Yeah. And then Sun Metals for just the torque of a, you know, a high-grade copper gold drill hole in a great jurisdiction on the back of still a very small valuation. It's a $30 million market cap company, so it's got lots of room to grow from here. Yeah. And is there any commodity you favor or metal? I mean, obviously you're involved in gold, silver, um, and copper. Is there any uh, a favorite for for you, or is it an obvious choice? Well, I mean, gold has always been my favorite. Uh, it's it's easy to it's easy to understand. It's easy to I mean, it serves such an important pers- pur- purpose in the sort of financial economic world. It is it is money. So in the environment we're in right now, given what's happening. Given all the capital that's being printed, all the cash that's being printed, I think gold has got a long way to go yeah. upwards. Yeah, and I won't give you a, a price of uh, what you think the gold may, may go to, um, unless, <laughs> unless, you want, unless you want to volunteer. But <laughs> no, I'm always wrong. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Mark, I really appreciate your time in uh, taking the time to do this podcast. Um, I've been following um, some of the uh, pure gold, for instance, so um, I really appreciate you uh, providing some... Uh, content around around those companies um if our audience wants to reach out to you um how can they go about doing that and are you on any social media platforms i'm actually not on any social media directly or some of our companies are yeah um but you can reach me at, at oxygencapitalcorp.com uh, moday at oxygencapitalcorp.com if you want to reach out yeah um and feel free to uh, email myself and i can pass any messages on to mark uh, and that's rob at mining-international.org. Um, really appreciate your time, Mark. Um, I'm sure I'll Thank be you, following. Rob. I'm sure I'll be following your uh, company through these uh, next few years, and hopefully our audience as well after listening to your to your story. So really appreciate, appreciate your time. Um, and for those that are listening, if um, anyone is interested in obviously in any of those companies, and and also if you know of anyone that may be interested in those companies, please uh, pass this. Uh, this podcast episode onto uh, onto your colleagues so they can uh, understand a little, a little bit about those companies and, and Mark's journey. So um, until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org. Or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.